Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from Wiltshire. It's rather a meaningless morning. Overcast, balmy, nothing going on out there. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London. It's um, pretty existentially meaningless over here too, and indeed a very nondescript day. Now, we have a guest today to talk about one of the most uh, powerful cricketing stories in the globe. It's absolutely inspiring uh, book, which has brought to life uh, an episode which is generally ignored, and it's absolutely contemporary and relevant, Richard. Well, it certainly is. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ayush Putran to the podcast. Ayush is a um, cricket journalist who's based in Mumbai, and uh, he has indeed written a fascinating book about uh, the history of Pakistan women's cricket. It's called Unveiling Jazba. So good morning um, to us, uh, Ayush. Good afternoon to you. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Can I ask you, first of all, tell us uh, what jazba means? J-A-Z, it's spelled B-A-B-A-A. So jazba is an Urdu word, which basically there's no English equivalent for it, but it's some sort of a cocktail of emotion, passion, uh, and a lot of such words, which is used quite often in Pakistan, the daily routine life for them to explain how they end up doing certain things that seem beyond their ability, uh, just because they have the passion and the emotion to be able to do that. And it is something that's often used with the Pakistani men's cricket team as well, uh, to sort of explain why one day when they're down in the dumps and no one expects them to put up a good performance and next day they just turn up and put just a mercurial side, but they're able to achieve what they're able to achieve because they have the jazba to do it. So it, it, is, it has a, a very strong Pakistani connect in that sense. But to, with women's cricket team, it was just to show because the idea of the title was the power of stepping out. And when you have the jazba, how many barriers do you break uh, just to be able to step out and what do you manage to achieve? Because jazba is sort of, I felt underrated or underutilized when its meaning is just attached to the men's team. Mm, well, it's a very pro word we might use in English, might import to England, and um, certainly a very appropriate title for your book because it gives a, um, it's a kind of light motif, a running theme of your book is the the passion that uh, was brought to um, Pakistan women's cricket by by its pioneering women. Um, I wish you will, your book is a history, a complete history of women's cricket in Pakistan, but it begins. We would say very late. Um, it's really quite a short history. It seems to begin in the 1970s, which is late for women's cricket in any country. And um, it um, seems in the 1970s to be confined to four elite institutions. Uh, would that be right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, because Pakistan is a class-based society and a certain section of women who had the resources and access could play, but it was much easier to sort of take part in individual pursuits uh, rather than form a team and then another gather 22 to 24 women and then play. So there were a lot of uh, women who were playing individual sports and that wasn't the case just in Pakistan, but also in India. 
where the first cricket team was sort of formed in the early 1970s. Uh, so was also the fact with hockey, uh, which flourished in the 1970s. But the difference was hockey was governed by the governments and uh, cricket was run by these private boards like the BCCI, so to say. So that's why uh, also hockey was a much popular sport among uh, a men, men's sport in the country. So that is why uh, the delay happened for women's cricket in general. Also, but there were accounts of some infrequent friendly matches in the 1960s or 50s or even before that of women just, you know, coming from royal families, affluent families and playing alongside men, just rolling their arms over, just swinging a bat uh, in a friendly game, but no specific serious set of continuity to it. Now, tell us about the Khan sisters who, who, who are, I tend to think there needs to be a film about their epic struggle. Um, I've seen similar films about women's movements to uh, achieve uh, equality in other fields. And I think they, uh, they absolutely deserve one. But tell some people, people won't have heard the story. So perhaps you should, perhaps you should just fill, fill us in with the details. Yeah, uh, so they were, uh, they hail from an extremely affluent family in Karachi, although they were Punjabis. Their father was a wealthy carpet merchant and their mother was a cricket tragic. Now I'm talking about Shaiza and Sharmin, the two sisters. Uh, and her mo their mother, in fact, postponed her wedding only to be able to watch the touring West Indies side in action. They Shaiza and Sharmin to London during the summer vacations where they would play cricket for the Winchmore Hill Cricket Club. And one of those days when Shaiza and Sharmin won a game for their team, they got a sense of identity that they were cricketers. It was also a point in time when cricket had become incredibly popular as a sport in Pakistan, with Imran Khan and Javed Nianda becoming superstars. So playing cricket for Pakistan had become aspirational uh, for the general public and also for them. However, during sort of Zia Ulhaq's regime, playing wasn't allowed for girls, like any public performance, singing, dancing, theatre. So they would play within the confines of the compound of their house, uh, and they would really look forward to the summer vacations in London where they could play cricket. And both were extremely ambitious, tactful women. And to a great deal, they found the support of their father to allow them to sort of aspire and achieve what they wanted to. And uh, they would really go out of their way to make things happen and not just settle with what is the status quo. Sadly, Charmaine uh, died a, a, a couple of years ago, I think. Uh, no longer with us. We've we both spent some time with uh, with her and uh, and Shiza some years ago, and um, heard some of the story from them. It's I think hard for English listeners to grasp how much of a struggle it was for them, how dangerous it was for them to um, you know to try and set up a women's cricket team in Pakistan uh, as they did to try and play a competitive match in Pakistan. If you look at the history of English women's cricket, you see a lot of discrimination, a lot of you know patronage, a lot of um, a lot of mockery of English um, women's cricket from time to time. But you don't see outright persecution. Tell us why it was became so dangerous for them to play cricket publicly as they did. So this has a political background to it because uh, in the late seventies to the late eighties, uh, Zia ul Haq had become a military dictator in Pakistan. And dictators come to power because they have the American money. That's how they come to power in Pakistan. But the problem is they don't know how to rule the country. So in order to do that, historically, what has happened with the dictators in Pakistan is that 
they have empowered these fringe religious outfits to control everything at a grassroots level now with zia ulhaq especially he ensured the replacement parts of the pakistan penal code were replaced by the hudood ordinance which were by design supposed to only entail a blueprint of sorts for the acceptable way of living uh, as per the sharia law but among several other things there were restrictions put on how women should be dressed on their public performances and in several cases even the court testimonies were considered half that of a man even in cases where there were there were allegations of rape they would meet the testimony of four honorable muslim men and there were punishments if they failed to prove a case of rape and the punishments were often you know more heinous than the crime itself that is considering the crime was crime at all in the first place there were public floggings were quite common uh, amputation for theft 100 lashes for sex by unmarried couples and stoning to death for extramarital sex so when zia ulhaq died uh, and benazir bhutto became the first women prime minister of pakistan shaiza sort of believed that if if the country is ready to have a women leader maybe she can also play cricket in pakistan because remember before that she was playing within the compounds of her house but unfortunately that was in a way a very simplistic way of looking at it in fact quite naive uh, because the moment she left uh came back to pakistan and uh, tried to play a cricket match against a veteran men's team which included even zahir abbas and advertised all of that uh they were met with death threats and even threats of stoning of their houses uh so the police commissioner of karachi had to intervene uh, he asked them to call it off so did their father that please call this off because this is dangerous but shaiza and the rush of a teenage spirit instead opted to sort of bargain with those strange religious groups to allow her to play so a match did happen she sort of went and convinced i don't know how 24 other women uh, or rather 22 other women to join in they lived with her they played a cricket match so a match happened between two women cricket teams and yeah the, i mean it was crazy they were they were surrounded by apparently 8000 policemen to guard them to be able to play so those were the conditions in which uh pakistan was when shaiza first attempted to play a cricket match now this was 1988 and the first international match that pakistan eventually played was 1997 so there's a gap of 9 years in which he's just trying to play that international match, was it in uh, in pakistan or abroad it was in new zealand they traveled yeah. to new zealand and then to australia and when did pakistan first host an international women's match Uh, that was in 2001 uh when they s- somehow convinced netherlands to to pakistan it was almost about to get called off but the shaiza knew how to bargain she knew how to please everyone and get things done because that was just about, not supposed to happen it was called off but uh, a series of lies uh, media reports were put out she uh, i don't know convinced uh, uh, them to come over she was amazing actually i mean absolutely the way the way they managed tell us about the the time when they all had to pretend to be traveling individually to the world cup in india that's such an amazing story yeah in fact individually there was also so in 1997 it was actually in fact late 96 when they traveled to new zealand and they had to do that secretly because she was worried what if this also gets halted if the news breaks out that there is a pakistan team that's traveling abroad because no women sports team till then had traveled abroad to play uh, so they left secretly individually and then in 1997 when they traveled to india for uh, 
the World Cup. By then, uh, everything was out that Shaiza is playing for Pakistan. Newer groups had come in, claiming to be the rightful uh, representatives of Pakistan cricket, and they tried to halt her from leaving the country. So she, uh, Shaiza, they got hold of the list of the players who were traveling to India. Uh, they were supposed to travel from Lahore to Delhi, which is quite a, a short distance. They and they were put on an exit control list, which is where hardcore criminals are put, uh, so that they don't escape the country. But Shaiza, again being Shaiza, she found out that the list hadn't reached the Karachi airport. So overnight, the entire team had to rush to Karachi. Uh, the coach didn't even have the required permission to travel to Karachi. Uh, the coach was Jody Davis from Australia. And they escaped to India from Karachi, even though technically they were, legally they were not allowed to leave. And well, they played for Pakistan. Can I just re- take the story back a, uh, a few years, um, Ayush? They, um, yeah. they play this, um, this one-off match behind closed doors, so to say, in, um, in the compound in, um, in Karachi, in their father's um, carpet factory grounds. Then their father says, you must fly back to, to England right away, doesn't he? You've got to get out of here. Uh, they go away for eight years. They come back determined to form a, um, a Pakistan women's team. In uh, it's, This is 1996 now. And they um, they actually advertise in, in papers all over Pakistan. They just say, you know, um, come and more or less say to, to girls and women all over Pakistan, look, come over and try out for the Pakistan women's cricket team, don't they? Even though there isn't, they've never had one before, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to advertise because there were no women and uh, who were playing cricket. And cricket, unlike, as I had mentioned, unlike individual sports, it isn't something that you can play by yourself. You need two teams. And how do you now convince uh, so many parents to allow their daughters to play when there's already an agitation by uh, these fringe religious outfits? So Zia Ullak has just died. And the after effects of that hasn't truly left. I mean, yes, Benazir Bhutto has come to power, but it's difficult to control these religious outfits because... They, uh, they have no, there's no punishment that you can give to completely halt them. So she went and she started reaching out to player, uh, women who were playing other sports like javelin throw or hockey or involved with other sports and convinced the parents to allow them to play with her. And she guaranteed the parents of their safety. And today Shaiza says, you know, I don't know why in my right mind did I guarantee them of their safety because... I don't think I was uh, strong enough to sort of help them in case something went off. But she did that and somehow the parents got convinced and they had a match. And after the match, immediately the father was like, go back to UK and return only when the country is ready for you. And that's when she went to the UK. She continued, I think she captained Middlesex County. Uh, and she was even there as a net bowler for the England cricket team ahead of the 93 World Cup. And that's when she realized that she couldn't play for England, uh, being a citizen of Pakistan. So she had to again reroute the entire process to come back to Pakistan. Uh, she spoke to the officials of the IWCC, checked out all the formalities, and she came back. And she came back even then, the father wasn't really ready to allow his daughters to play. So in that carpet factory where she was working by then, she continued to secretly work on making the constitution, on building a team, on building a structure. Uh, because the father was like, I've sent you to England to study, not to play cricket. And if you're playing cricket, please play cricket there. Don't come back to Pakistan and start playing cricket. 
so there was a lot of confusion at that point but yeah i mean she wanted that that was the intensity of her desire to just be able to break through what didn't seem normal what seemed extremely risky shasen uh, shamin had some quite notable recruits didn't they into the compound tell us about some of them kiran balok was one of them sonamir was a guest on the podcast herself some uh, some months ago I uh, was uh, joined them although she later I think fell out with them um and there was one age there's one girl she they managed to attract who did very very well from Pakistan um there was only 12 when she when she reached them tell us tell us about some of them anyway yeah she's Sajida Shah and she was quite an interesting case uh so Shaiza had organized a trial in a village called Kotri in Hyderabad and she was impressed by how straight Sajida held her bat while playing the shots and she was just well as you were saying and she didn't have too many strokes but was a very natural uh, had a very natural and compact technique even though she was quite young shaiza believed that there is some genuine talent there however uh, sajida's parents didn't allow her to go and play so she secretly called up shaiza and expressed her desire and told her about the situation in the house shaiza then traveled to a village and convinced sajida's parents to let her play and as you see now she holds two world records for the highest opening partnership in test cricket and the best bowling figures in odis uh those records still stand sanamir and kiran baloch of course had it much easier sana uh, kiran baloch's father used to play first class cricket and when she came across an ad in the newspaper she uh, her family took her to the trials at the national stadium in karachi where she got selected but when the time came and they were they were to travel to new zealand to play the parents weren't quite sure whether she should be skipping her education and playing cricket because they didn't see much of a future in the sport of course the pakistan had never played international cricket till then it took some convincing from the principal of a school to allow her to play uh, sana mir on the other hand had it way more easier because she was daughter of an army man and uh, the army has a lot of power in pakistan so she had a free run at that i must say just everything you're saying i can see a most wonderful film being made of the <laughs> struggle of these very brave committed young women to um, to play cricket in pakistan we called them the the suffragettes of pakistan women's cricket uh, when we wrote about them ourselves a bit earlier yeah Um Aish, one recurring theme in your book is difficult relationship for Pakistan women's cricket um with authority um in Pakistan uh and um sometimes they get a sympathetic um authority as when our friend Arif Abbasi was running the PCB other times they get a very very unsympathetic authority including the one that um treated them as you know as uh, as criminals for wanting to play an international match stepping back from the absolute you know from all the internal struggles do you think the turmoil in pakistan cricket administration has affected men's cricket as well but do you think it's actually been worse for women's cricket since they have um the more dependent on the um uh, on the pcb on authority to be able to play at all that's true that's true because unlike the men women have had social challenges which sort of blocks their access to cricket in itself now i'll tell you with arif ali abbasi uh, there are two contrasting pictures that have been painted about him uh, to me one by uh, shaiza kiran and afia salam and the other from the book that i read uh, war minus the shooting 
So when I sort of add these two together, it just seems as if Abbasi wanted to do something noteworthy, something to fit into the system, make it different, just be seen and told that he's a good person. So mm-hmm. of course, Arif Ali Abbasi offered that support, offered that help. But the reason they, um, I mean, I, I, as you had mentioned, even with Majid Khan in your book, The Wounded Tiger, Majid Khan was quite blatant as to where his priorities lied, especially since he was running the PCB and men's cricket was in a mess. To top it, he belonged to the Burki clan from Lahore. He had to deal with the pressures of uh, multiple uh, uh, issues at that point. But the problem with Pakistan cricket is begins with acceptance at home. When you're accepted at home, you're allowed to go and play. And if you're allowed to go and play, where do you go and play? Are there facilities available? Are there grounds available? Because remember, in Pakistan, they're only comfortable playing in closed spaces. This includes the international cricketers. So if you are going to watch a, a match in Pakistan, a women's cricket match, you and I won't be allowed unless we are going there as journalists. As individual men, they are not allowed because the players are not comfortable. So you don't find these secured spaces for them. You have to travel all the way to Lahore or Karachi maybe to find these clubs. Because if you're playing out in the open, it's you're not just being watched by those who are playing. People from different villages, nearby villages, flock just to see that a woman is playing. So that becomes an extremely uncomfortable space. So now that you're playing, after that, the kind of money that they earn, it is not enough to make a living. I mean, a good living. It's nowhere comparable to the other teams in the world. So, of course, you need sort of uh, the administration to be far more supportive. Men's cricket, by the sheer weight of its popularity, can run on autopilot mode as of now. That is where men's cricket has reached. And But unfortunately, the focus of several administrators, tenure after tenure, has been on men's cricket. We just saw that last year when the England men's team opted out for a bizarre reason uh, from touring Pakistan. There was also a women's series that was supposed to happen. And the women's team also backed out. Uh, and no reason was given for them to back out. Yet nobody questioned that. Why is the women's team backing out? Because administrators across the world in cricket have always given a secondary treatment to women's cricket. Tell me though, I, I, when I was last in Lahore, I was strolling through um, the Baggy Jinnah and there was a game of women's cricket going on in an open space, just totally normal. Uh, there wasn't a sort of a bunch of men sort of staring at it. It was just normal. And this is in Lahore, which is thought of as quite a, a conservative um, city. So isn't, isn't, isn't something changing or has it gone into reverse now? Lahore is a conservative city compared to only and only Karachi and maybe to an extent Islamabad. But at the end of the day, it is still the second most progressive city in Pakistan. And again, I'm not sure in which area of Lahore because Lahore has these... This is a baggy in central Lahore, near, near the... Okay, yeah. Because also Lahore has the most thriving college cricket scene for women cricketers, even today. And that has historically been the case with Kinnaid College and a lot of other colleges, Atchison and uh, several other colleges. And also, in Lahore, these generational aristocrats of Pakistan have been living. And these people, the uh, women of those families mostly have some sort of liberty and access which no one else has. So I'm not entirely sure if this is a common sight. Um, uh, since you've traveled so much of Pakistan, you would probably know that open spaces, whether those are parks, those are streets, wherever it is, and whoever is playing cricket, 
it would mostly be men or boys. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Ayush, what sort of support of Pakistan's women's cricketers received from, from their male cricketers, um, from their test stars and their ex-test stars? Earlier, there was support from uh, Kardar, Hanif Mohammad, Zahir Abbas and a few other players in the past. And the men's team is certainly more supportive of the women cricketers now, at least on public platforms. In fact, even Shahid Afridi, who will openly claim that he wouldn't let his daughters play and girls are better at utilizing their hands in the kitchen uh, instead of a sports field, has been surprisingly supportive of the women's team, the women's cricket team. But yet, there is no parity and I suppose it's a global phenomena again. You see women cricketers talking about the men's team all the time, supporting them every 50, every century. It's not the same response from the men, apart from a customary all the best or congratulations. So you don't even know in today's time whether it is just to put up uh, an optic of being uh, forward-looking or rather even really looking at their games. But there's certainly no one objecting to this openly. Yes, there were, I mean, Abdul Razak was a recent example. Uh, just last year, he sort of mocked Nidadar for having strong hands and uh, mocked her by saying that uh, your hands, when I shake hands with you, it feels like I'm shaking hands with a man. And everybody laughed around him. Uh, so, yes, there is a, a... You don't know what they're trying to portray in front, nothing uh, explicitly, but time and again, these jokes sort of come out in the form of jokes, these comments. So, yes, there is uh, an issue with that. Just recently, Ayush, we've had a big milestone in Pakistan women's cricket, haven't we? When um, uh, a Pakistani woman scored a, um, a century in a T20 match in the T- current T20 World Cup. How was that received? A, by the men's team, B, by the public in general. Did it get the same sort of profile as that sort of achievement by a man? Uh, certainly not. Certainly not. Nowhere close to that. Uh, because there are very few people watching Pakistan women's cricket. There's very little done for the promotion of the game. So, uh, no, I, I don't think they understood the enormity of it. And the sad bit was, I don't think people even understood what Muniba Ali's career was like. Why is it such a big achievement? So, yes, that sort of discussion was totally lost. And yes, in, in a few days' time, they were, of course, playing other matches and they lost the other games. So, there wasn't enough time to really celebrate what is such a phenomenal achievement for Pakistan, firstly, and secondly, for Muniba Ali's career, which is a, a pretty interesting uh, t- turn that has taken. Well, that invites us to ask you about it. Um, tell us about her, her career. Why, what's so unusual about it? She joined in 2016, and she came in as a replacement for Nain Abdi. Nain Abdi was an extremely experienced cricketer, and ahead of the 2016 World T20, the selectors wanted to push Muniba Ali, a youngster, a promising youngster. And there was friction between Sanamir and the selectors at that point because Sanamir wanted the experienced hand of Nain Abdi, who also happens to be a very close friend. Uh, but the selectors wanted to bet on this promising youngster, Muniba Ali. And yet, from 2016 till just before the World Cup, Muniba Ali just never delivered. The highest score of 43 across formats she was just not performing and coaches came, coaches left and they kept backing her. And there was sort of criticism that uh, there is some sort of favoritism happening. When will Muniba Ali deliver? For how long will you persist with her? Yet coaches, including Mark Poles, 
said that in during his tenure that Muniba Ali is the best batter Pakistan has, even though she was not scoring. And there was her opening partner, who's Javeria Khan, who has performed to the maximum potential that she could and went on to become possibly the best Pakistani batter. She was at the other end. And Muniba Ali, the so-called talent that was never ever seen, came to the fore in this World Cup, in this knock. Those kinds of shots that she played were phenomenal. And now you know what for five years, six years, seven years, all these coaches have been talking about. When she was not delivering, so many people backed her. And now you could see with the kind of innings that she played that there was something absolutely stand out about this cricketer, which you can't find among the other batters in Pakistan. Reminds us a bit about Crawley, the English <laughs> men's England batter. <laughs> for many years, completely <laughs> incomprehensible support for him. Seven years later, maybe. It's like to sometimes keep faith. Obviously, they've been right uh, in in this case, Maniba. But you say, um, Ayush, which is sad. Nobody saw her. Very few people saw her, tele- her achievement on television. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, because very few people watch it. I remember the last time at the Asia Cup when Pakistan beat India. Now, Pakistan beating India is a huge, huge achievement. No one watched it. It's only after the game that people turned up and they were like, congratulations, my team is the best. But nobody really spoke about the performances that were put up. Who did what? Because people are not watching it. They just turned up just because Pakistan won. So you know that there is some affinity towards cricket itself. And there's a big deal about Pakistan beating India and all of that. But they're not watching those games. That is the unfortunate bit. That is interesting because because in India, there's great support for women's cricket on telly and elsewhere, isn't there? There's actually a big transfer market in women's cricketers and huge audiences, I believe. Yeah, I remember the last time uh, there was a cricket match uh, between India and Australia, a bilateral series. I think 10 million people turned up and watched it on just on online uh, and not even on television. So online, there were 10 million people. uh, The stadiums were full. So yes, things have changed in India and over the last five years. Also, there was a big turning point with the 2017 World Cup where India reached the final. That proved to be a turning point. And after that, the momentum has gathered to that point where today, Women's Premier League, which has not even started, is already the second most expensive cricket property after the IPL. So that just speaks for it. It's bigger than BBL. It's bigger than any of the men's league anywhere in the world. Perhaps we should just pause briefly on what the sort of atmosphere is for women's cricket in sort of the remoter rural areas, which is most of Pakistan, of course. What's your Im- Im- impression of that, Ayush? Yeah, uh, clearly the women coming from rural areas uh, the ac- firstly, the acceptance is a lot lower because in cities like Lahore and Karachi, where firstly there are colleges, there are structures, there are clubs where women are playing, uh, it is much easier for them to access and just be seen. It, it normalizes the fact that women or girls are stepping out and playing. So it becomes that much more easier for uh, women in the cities to go out and play. There was a case of Nazia Nazir who came from a rural part of Pakistan, but she belonged to a feudal family. So she was affluent, she was rich, yet she had to play in secrecy. Now she has, of course, played for Pakistan. She's also an umpire or a scorer, I'm not sure. 
but uh, it's a story of how things progress i mean even nahida khan who's come from this border town of chaman which is in the pakistan afghanistan border in balochistan she is the only uh, woman cricketer to come from there she had to play cricket in secrecy from her neighbors for 8 years because the first time she did well at a college event and her name and photo appeared in the newspapers the neighbors came and questioned her parents and it led to a big fight big argument and after that they sort of boycotted them and she had to continue playing in secrecy she made a debut around 2009 and till 2017 world cup even the neighbors didn't know that she was playing for pakistan in 2017 they just found out because she was on television and they were watching it and she was performing well for pakistan that is when she could finally reveal that yes i am the one playing for pakistan what an amazing story of course that part of balochistan is a very wild area indeed isn't it where even the i imagine the pakistani state trembles to to go too deeply into it indeed indeed it's not just balochistan even khai khaibar pakhtunkhwa there is a squash player nurina shams her story i mean she didn't go on to become a cricketer but the first time she was allowed to go out and play was when uh, during a war between the taliban and the pakistan army one mm-hmm. missile uh, took down the school in the village so that was the only school that was there in the village and children had to sit at home for 9 months because there was no schooling and at that point because this is pre pandemic times they it was not normal to see children sitting at home alone so mm-hmm. then she was allowed to go out and play cricket uh, with a few boys and there were some army men who would join in a game of cricket so that is how the access to cricket even began there so uh, now she's a squash player of course but yes it's kind of crazy the kind of challenges that they have to endure and now even after acceptance where do they go and play cricket there were uh, diana beck who was who was from gilgit baltistan she had to travel all the way to lahore during the pandemic just to train because there are no training facilities available close to where she stays and she has been playing for pakistan for close to a decade now so even for her to travel as much because there is no access to areas and a lot of girls will not get that permission to be traveling alone because parents are concerned about their safety uh, and they rightfully so because the kind of uh, public transport or facilities available they're not sure of it parents themselves would have not traveled so far so the permissions that men get to travel and live by themselves those permissions don't come for women and girls well by the way uh, when richard and i were researching wounded tiger i i spent a lot of time talking to young men who who started playing cricket in kaba uh, pakhtunwa and the tribal areas um and they had the same problems with their parents i mean they got beaten uh, for playing cricket by their fathers I mean, quite common uh, they were ordered never to play it and if they did it they had to do it in secret from their parents and that was ma- males and it was, i think that in that case it was partly that they were sort of thought to interfere with their studies and i think also partly it was seen as a sort of uh, as a game which was foreign to the traditions of the tribal areas and so they too had to put up with a lot that's quite an interesting uh, point of view i was not aware of this because uh, yes in even in india and in pakistan to be playing sports is not something that parents would encourage because education becomes a strong part of our lives so sports unless you are sure that it's going to become a profession and you're going to earn money out of it is not encouraged even for boys 
but i am not sure about what happened in khyber pakhtunkhwa did it have something to do with the afghani refugees who had traveled there and was it a specific community because a lot also changed during musharraf's tenure in that mm-hmm. region well uh, i got got more that in remote areas with strong tribal discipline so that it was nothing to do with the afghan refugees it was just that was the culture and it, and i think it, they there was a long memories back to the british rule for instance where cricket was seen as something which was fundamentally hostile to local people i think that was part of it too although i i wouldn't be certain about that that's quite fascinating I mean, going back to what you said about India um, a moment ago, Ayush, I mean, quite a lot of famous Indian players had to um, had to fight quite strongly, uh, resist family pressure to uh, to pursue an alternative career. And I know one of them was VVS Laxman. VVS Laxman came from a medical family, and uh, I know that they wanted him to become a doctor as well, didn't they? Didn't they? And they wanted him to. Um, he had to fight quite strongly to become. to follow a professional cricket career didn't he that's the case with everyone every single person because we don't have a culture of sports in india or in pakistan so sports even recreationally we barely ever play so to see that as a profession and to sacrifice all of that is not something that is encouraged and especially from i mean vivius lakshman comes from uh, the middle class upper caste background of india so he's as privileged as anyone else you can find in the country so uh, for them it is always seen doc- being a becoming a doctor is seen as a matter of pride for families but that that's a case with everyone it's changing now with ipl and all the money coming in and all the fame and all of that and access to a lot more avenues uh, more people are coming into the system and get making a living out of it with the kind of money that they are but earlier especially vvs lakshman's era it was just not possible you had 11 cricketers making it to the national team and the struggle to get there is a lot more so there's a difference why vvs lakshman was not allowed to play and why say a pakistani woman is not allowed to play there's a difference or even indian women a lot of indian women probably go through the same struggle uh, but the reasons are different here it's a matter of honor that to see a woman play cricket is a matter of dishonor for a lot of families the case of nida dar who's possibly the greatest pakistani cricketer a uh, women cricketer for her to be for her brother to see her go and play was a matter of shame among his friends that is why he was against his sister playing and she had to play in secrecy from her brother so the reasons are completely different why vivias lakshman and why nida dar were not encouraged to play Now you've reported on women and cricket in other countries as well. Um, perhaps we could talk a little bit about what's now happening in in, in with cricket in Afghanistan. Um, you know, the ICC didn't it? It sent an inquiry team to Afghanistan, but an inquiry team with no women on it. No reports been published. Nothing done by the ICC. Uh, what's uh, Is there still any cricket in Afghanistan, and what do you think the future of it is? Women's no cricket, women, yeah. no women's cricket at all. Uh, that is for a fact, because now, now this this is where everything starts getting interesting. Because if there's a crazier story of women cricket, uh, crazier story than Pakistan, it would be Afghanistan. If at all that happens, because Taliban like uh, Ziaullah, they will run on the hudud ordinance, uh, the laws. 
by those Sharia laws, and women are not allowed to perform publicly. Now, either they bend those laws because cricket is extremely popular among its fan base, or they stick by what they feel is this culture and their society or what the laws they want to uh, go ahead with. It will make for something very interesting, but there's no progress at all. Uh, Afghanistan is not budging. There is certainly external pressure from the other boards because just because how popular men's cricket has become in Afghanistan. Now, the moment you start boycotting your men cricketers, uh, the public may not be too happy. That is how popular the sport has become. It's become a very strong source of soft power. Now, it is on Taliban how they are going to handle the situation, but right now they are not budging. What is your view? Richard and I disagree on this issue. Do you think that um, Australia, for instance, was correct not to play Afghanistan on the basis that women's cricket wasn't allowed? Or, or do you think that it's right to continue? And I think the argument's more finely balanced than sometimes is acknowledged. Uh, I'm conflicted. Yes, I mean, yes, you're taking a stand uh, for something what you feel is right or wrong. And also because, especially when a Western country does it, there is always this apprehension that they don't truly understand the complexities of these issues. But yes, I mean, nobody's supporting Taliban, even in this part of the world. Nobody's really supporting Taliban. But uh, just that because it's a Western country and that there is a tendency to sort of... Um, get into the affairs of somebody else, uh, it becomes a little apprehensive, but it's, it's a very complex case. But yes, I mean, that's a stand the moment everyone takes that stand. Unfortunately, the pa Afghanistan cricketers might suffer and the Afghanistan men cricketers are also taking a stand. It's not just Australia. So uh, they're all taking a stand against Afghanistan. The moment that happens and the moment there is public pressure, Will there be a scope that Afghanistan might budge? Will there be a possibility of a change? Probably, yes. Well, Peter and I don't see eye to eye on this, and we could get sidetracked onto it well, for quite a few hours. Um, I take the view that the International Cricket Council, the International um, Cricket Council, is a body that um, that has rules. That rules include the uh, provision of cricket for women in every country. Um, if it's not willing to enforce these rules. Um, it becomes absolutely meaningless as an authority. But let's um, uh, perhaps leave it there. Um, I'd like to go back for a moment uh, or two to um, to the Con sisters and the end of their, um, I might say, experiment in creating women in Pakistan women's cricket team. Um, there was always dispute, wasn't there, in Pakistan over their right to be the um, um, representatives of women, Pakistan women's cricket. There was a big factional dispute, three-way factional dispute with two factions in Lahore all the time. And um, eventually, at perhaps the moment of greatest triumph, uh, the Cohen sisters actually play a test match against the West Indies in Karachi. They put up two record-breaking performances. I know Shaisa still feels that they might have won that test match, but for some dodgy umpiring, but uh, we'll go into that. Uh, at this moment of triumph, they then lose out completely to, to the Lahore factions, and that's because they lose their biggest asset, which is their recognition by the International Women's um, uh, Cricket Conference, and um, that body disappears, and... Uh, Women's cricket um, becomes part of the International Cricket Council. It looks after uh, it looks after it, and and with that, women's cricket in Pakistan comes under the wing of the Pakistan Cricket 
cricket board for the first time, so they lose out completely. Uh, I think that uh, that's a fair summary of the story. I'd just like to say, um, one of two of our guests are sorry that, that women lost their separate representational body in international cricket. The IWCC disappeared. Some people regret that. Do you regret it? Do you think it's been, or do you think it's a good as well that um, women's cricket is now part of the ICC? In terms of women not getting positions of power, maybe yes. Uh, that is the sad part of this merger because they're just not in positions of power in most of the boards. Uh, at the same time, at the ICC as well, it's just dominated by men taking calls for women's cricket. But there are a certain advantages as well because before the merger, most women cricket bodies struggled with finances. The 2005 World Cup would have probably never happened. Pakistan, in that sense, was sort of fortunate that one family could bear the expenses of an entire cricket team and make cricket happen. But post the ICC takeover, of course, the number of matches have increased tremendously, significantly. The kind of facilities on offer are better. But there aren't as many women, again, as I mentioned, positions of power to be taking the calls that they would probably want to take for themselves. And that, again, is a global phenomenon. So, yes, uh, that is the good part and the bad part for that merger. But a lot of things, I mean, what, that are happening in women's cricket today, because it's still running in losses, they're able to do that purely from the money might that they're getting from men's cricket that is being transferred to the women's game. And just the sheer number of games, those were not happening earlier. But a very interesting coincidence, at least in India and Pakistan, is that earlier in India, a lot more people would come and watch cricket matches. Maybe it was about the times, the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, there was also fairly higher media coverage than it was in the decade of the 2000s uh, for both India and Pakistan. And I don't know how that changed after the respective boats took over. There was a certain sense of ignorance towards the women's game earlier. But now even that is changing significantly with both BCCI and the PCB. Ayush, one of the uh, sort of, we have articulated that this yet, but there is a certain awkwardness in this conversation. Here we are, three uh, men uh, discussing women's cricket. I mean, why is it that you, uh, as a male journalist, chose to to, to, to write and um, actually very, very well about, about women's cricket in, in Pakistan. Uh, why I chose to write, I, 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 write for, I write on cricket for a living. I write on men's cricket, women's cricket, all kinds of cricket on, across countries. Like my women counterparts write on men's cricket as well. So I do write, but I was extremely mindful that I am the one narrating this. So at the same time, you'd probably find a, a very different approach to my writing where there will be a lot of quotes. It's an extremely quotes-heavy book and mm -hmm. not something that a typical uh, book would be like where I'm supposed to just suck in information and put across my point of view. My book will have a lot of quotes and that may not make for the best reading, but I still believe that their version has to come out in their words and not my words. So that was something I was mindful of. At the same time, I did approach right at the beginning several women to co-author with me, but for some reason, they were not willing to join in. And in the end, probably it was a good idea because many of them had conflict of interest, as they had mentioned earlier. They were aligned to a certain party or not. Otherwise, those who knew anything about Pakistan women's cricket, because I'm also aware I'm not a Pakistani. I'm an Indian sitting in India. I'm a man. I'm a Hindu. I'm aware of that. 
So now this becomes a completely outsider's perspective. This is not the ultimate book on Pakistan women's cricket. This is just an introduction to the game. From here, several people from Pakistan have to use this as a platform to research further and bring in their narratives. And this is not just a Pakistani woman because the moment, suppose, Sana Meer gives her version, people will be like, what does Sana Meer know about her, our struggles because she had it easy. So is it a woman from Lahore who will write or is it a woman from Karachi who will write? Is it a Shia who will write or is it a Sunni who will write? Is it a woman who belongs to an affluent family or a woman who comes from a poor family? So there are going to be several, several, several threads and narratives that have to build in to make a complete literature on Pakistan cricket. Only the moment this book becomes completely irrelevant is when the literature of Pakistan women's cricket will truly succeed. This is just an outsider's perspective. Well, that's a very striking and, may say so, very modest assessment of your book, which is um, a very vivid and um, a very important perspective on Pakistan women's cricket history, but it's certainly a great incentive to others to pick up the story, and uh, we very much hope that they will and contribute their own jasper to the, um, uh, to the process. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Richard and Peter. Had a great time. Thank you very much. I, I find that's a wonderful uh, discussion. Uh, and it's goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in a... Uh, in, it's almost spring here in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller. It's a little more spring-like here in southeast London. Mm-hmm.